if someone were to come to you and say, do you believe in predestination, what would your answer be? Some are saying no, and others are saying yes. So it's a trick question, isn't it? But in its most basic form, is predestination found in the Bible at all? Thank you. So then, do we believe the Bible? So then we do believe in predestination. Amen? Amen. Now, the person who asks you, like my cousin, do you believe in predestination? I know what he's thinking, and I answer, not like you're thinking. (laughs) Okay? But... There are certain scriptures that are very difficult to answer from whatever perspective you come from. The predestinationalist who believes in double predestination, he's going to have a hard time with it, and we're going to have a hard time with it. Did not Peter say that our dear brother Paul writes things difficult to understand? And he even warned that unstable minds would twist these things to their own destruction. So, the mysteries of the truth are not just going to automatically occur to you because someone drafts an equation on a chalkboard and you go, oh, of course, I get it. There is a nuance of understanding that even Peter presupposed about Paul's very writings. Amen? And if we're going to talk about predestination... The number one, there are two main passages and many supporting it, but the main passage is going to be Romans 9. And in order to understand Romans 9, we need to have a brief glossary of the previous foregoing passages. Somebody tell me what Romans 6 is about. It's about grace. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How, how, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he goes on and he says that through death we are justified. Your Bible translates it freed and it's justified. He's referring to the death of repentance that is sealed in the commitment of baptism. And he says in verse 9, we are united with him through death. That is such an important passage because everybody agrees that Jesus' sacrifice is a saving sacrifice. It is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but the sins of the entire world. Amen? The question is not concerning the value or efficacy of his sacrifice. It's the application of his sacrifice. How do I get united to that saving sacrifice? To that righteous man. The one called Jesus Christ the righteous by John. The only one who could really say, I do only what the Father says. As I hear, I speak. I do nothing of my own initiative. Amen? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So our goal in salvation is to become completely united with this only righteous man. When the earth was put under the dominion of man, the heavens, the heavens, these are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. Psalms 115 and 16. Amen? He made him ruler over all the works of his hands, Psalms 8. He gave him dominion over every living creature in the sea, in the air, that crawled upon the earth, Genesis 3. Amen? So God creates this perfect world, this perfect universe, and he gives man temporary custody over the works of his hands. It's temporary in the sense that there will come a day of reckoning. Whether that day comes at 7,000 years or 8,000 or 10,000, we don't know. With the Lord, a day is as 1,000 years and vice versa. But the day is going to come. 
In an ultimate sense, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. In an ultimate sense, God reigns over all the works of his hands. Amen? But in an immediate sense, he has allowed mankind provisional dominion over the works of his hands. And what did we do? Did we take that trust that God invested in us and in turn submit to him in a voluntary relationship of love? Is that what we did? We know according to Romans 8 that he subjected the creation to futility, that's us, in hope, right? In hope. Have we disappointed those hopes? According to Genesis 6, God looked over all the earth and saw that all the works of it were evil and that the entire intent of man's heart was toward wickedness. And he was sorry that he made man. And he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. He is but dust. I made him out of the dust of the earth. And that's when the flood was sent as the judgment to wipe the slate clean and give us a new start. So man has, in, has taken the dominion that God put in his hands and he has subjected himself to another and another's control. Who am I referring to? Jesus called him the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, the God of this world. So is Yahweh the God of this world? In an ultimate sense, yes. Love will prove triumphant. Love will prevail. God's power will prove triumphant. He subjected the creation to futility and hope, and hope has disappointed, but in the end, hope will not disappoint. There will be a people... There will be a mighty rising up. There will be a glory given unto the Lord. Amen? The whole earth will be filled with His glory. Beginning at Zion, it will spread to the uttermost ends of the earth. But right now, we're not in that stage. So, because the Lord gave the earth to man as a gift, and because He gave man a choice, He gave him injunctions, but He gave him a choice. When He said to him, Do not eat of the tree. He was inherent in that commandment was a choice. A choice to obey or a choice to disobey. That choice is what we call free will. So God gave man free will and he gave man dominion. And man took that free will and that dominion and he subjected himself to another. Romans 6 what is it, 16 through 19, says, whatever you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to or of obedience leading to. So we have enslaved ourselves and we cannot stop the behavior by ourselves. This world is under the control of the evil one. This is not a world without pain, without injustice, without the suffering of innocence. And that is not God's fault. That is our fault and a consequence of the freedom he gave us when he loved us. Amen? If God had not given us freedom, there would be no, there would be no suffering. He could just coerce our conscience, couldn't he? But because he gave us freedom, we have done with our freedom what we saw best. We have brought pain and misery and heartbreak on the earth and on our own souls. Now, when Jesus came, he slipped into this world that was under the canopy of Satan's control. He had a stranglehold of fear on this world. How does he hold us in bondage all our lifetime? Hebrews 2.14, through the fear of death. Jesus slips in, in the helpless form of a baby. It's like an insurgent slipping, slipping into the hostile nation of Iran. And the powers that be do not know that an insurgent is among them. Because of his meekness, he is camouflaged by his meekness. Behold, your king comes, meek and lowly, and riding on a donkey. What kind of threat is that? Now, when the threat is brought to the attention 
of Satan and his goons, such as Herod, we know what happens, right? But he pretty much flies under the radar until he's about 30 years old. And then he starts bringing the truth, bringing confrontation of truth to power. And did they respect it? Did they appreciate it? Appreciate it? Did they thank him for it? They hated him so much that for him to speak truth was like writing his own death certificate. They became murderously hateful toward him when, he, when they were confronted with truth. And had he kowtowed and played nice, then he would not have laid down his life. But he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free will. But I thought the Sanhedrin arrested him. And I thought the Romans put him to death. He laid his life down of his own free will when he spoke truth that he knew would provoke their ire to such a degree that it would end in murder. He was sacrificing himself by meekly standing before them and saying, Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you scribes! Woe to you Bethsaida! Woe to you Capernaum! By speaking the truth, by standing in front of this temple that had become a kind of idol for them, Herod's temple, and saying, not one stone will be left upon another. He was striking a blow at their security system, at their salvation system. And if you want to make religious people nervous and then angry and perhaps murderous, start questioning their salvation system. Amen? Jesus came to a world that was under the dominion of darkness and death. He spoke truth to power. He spoke truth to established religion. And they hated him. They murdered him. But he had said, Behold, the ruler of this world is coming. But he has no hold on me. What gives the devil a hold on us, our bodies, okay? The, what, what puts us under the curse is what I'm talking about, is the fact that we are sinners. Not just our parents, but we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. It runs in our veins. Amen? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are shut up under disobedience. Amen? So when Jesus comes, he slips into this country where everybody is controlled by the Iranian government because they're sinners. But he is found without sin, nor is deceit in his mouth. When reviled, he does not revile in return. Amen. When slandered, he turns the other cheek. He has no hold on me, Jesus says. And yet, he submitted, he allowed himself to be taken by the devil. To be taken by the powers of evil that were in the world. And to be tried and executed by those same powers. He submitted to the unjust death on the cross. God, the Father could not have done it because the Father is not unjust. But he submitted to the unjust death on the cross. But if the rulers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who crucified the Lord of glory? The rulers of this world. Was it just or unjust? It was unjust. It was the one death that Satan did not have a right to take. The one life he did not have the right to take. In some sense, we walked into it. All the deaths, in some sense, could be justified because it's our doing. But Jesus was the one that he had no hold on. And yet he let himself be taken hold of because he wanted, he wanted to undermine the just Canopy of control. So why was he doing it? Was he doing it because he acknowledged Satan's power? No, he was doing it because he acknowledged his own justice 
which he could not deny. Amen? Justice says if you give people free will, you cannot forcibly make them do your will. Justice says if you give people dominion of the world, you cannot forcibly take it back. Do you understand? So he has got to find a way of satisfying justice while at the same time liberating those that the devil is holding in bondage using justice to do so. Remember Colossians 2, 11? It says that he triumphed over principalities and powers having nailed their ordinances Now, the ordinances, the law itself was not sin. Justice was not sin. But he says, he nailed their ordinances to the cross. They were using justice against love. But mercy came and triumphed over justice. Went way beyond justice. Satisfied the demands of justice. And created a great rip in the canopy of Satan's control. He does not save the whole world because of his sacrifice. Remember his prayer in John 17? Father, I pray for those whom you have given me out of the world. Now what are his next words? I do not pray for the world. I do not pray for the world, but those whom you have given me out of the world. He did not come to take over the world. He came to establish an embassy, a beachhead of heaven on earth. He came to let down Jacob's ladder at the house of God and to say, this is my body like a veritable elevator shaft, a stairway of light. Come into me. Leave all of your duped autonomy and illusions of freedom. Leave all of your independence. Leave your identity behind. And I will lead captive a host of captives. Come unto me. Take my name upon you. Take my spirit within you. Lose your own control over your own life. Come under my lordship and mastery. Let me own you. Let me have you. You're just as controlled where you are, but you're controlled while entertaining the illusions of freedom. So abandon all that and come unto me, all you who labor and suffer under that system and are sick and tired of it, and I will give you rest for your souls. I have a yoke and I have a burden, but by comparison, Doing God's will and submitting to God's way is freedom and rest compared to the arduous, painful road of the transgressor. The way of the transgressor is hard. Whatsoever a man sows that, he shall also reap. Jesus does not offer to hand out salvation certificates to people still situated in this world. Salvation is always spoken of spatially. Are you with me? It is spoken of as a place, not a plan. It is spoken of as a relationship, not a formula. And Christians today have lost sight of this. But think about it. He says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in him. Do a study sometime on the three words in Greek that are translated in. It is a place. It is not a formula. It is not an ascension to facts. It is a place. Remember when they stood before the Sanhedrin, they said, by what name or in whose authority did you heal this man? And they said, let it be known to you in all the house of Israel. That this man stands before you whole by none other than the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. For there is salvation in no one else. The name corresponds to entrance into the place. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven 
that is given among men whereby we must be saved. I will not be saved by a a self-improvement project in my own name. Do you understand? Your identity, your passport, if you will, when you get to the gates of hell and you show them your passport, you're going to get a stamp that says, denied, denied, no entry. When you get to the gates of heaven, when you get trying to escape the control of this this earth, this hell-bound earth, denied is the only response for the individuals. There's only one passport that has freedom of movement between the kingdoms. Amen? He who descended into hell itself through his agony, he has established a place on earth where Satan has no control. And he says, if you'll get inside of me, if you'll lose your name, if you'll lose your spirit, if you'll lose the way you look, the way you talk, the way you relate, if you'll walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, then your life is going to be hid with Christ in God. Amen? There, are, there is an orange alert. There is a delta alert at all the exit points from this earth saying, watch out for John. Watch out for Ephraim. Notice, do not let Ossie exit this kingdom of death. And so if you go marching in and your independence from Christ, no matter if you accept what he did or not, you have no power. He says, upon this rock of who Christ is, I will build my church. Not I will improve my individuals. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not against them. It is an entity. It is a place. And the place is the body of Christ himself. The gates of hell will prevail against individuals. The gates of hell will prevail against families. But wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. When we get there, we're going to be tucked in the folds of his garments. We're going to be hidden in Christ. We're not going to make a sound from the flesh or an appearance of the flesh. He is going to walk as he leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Salvation is not individualistic. It is a place. And the place is Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why you have to take on his name in baptism. The name contained in the name is the essence and the presence of the person. Wherever else have you ever heard of praising a name? Why would you praise a name? Do Christians and Jews not praise his name? Is it not absurd to praise a name unless the very presence of the being is in the name? His name is his power and his presence, his very spirit, is contained in the name. That's how God looks at names. When Abraham is changed at his core, God has to change his name. Why? Because the essence of the person corresponds to the name. The name corresponds to the essence. The same is true for God. Amen? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men, no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Okay? So Paul, in Romans 6, tells us of how we are united to his saving sacrifice. Of how we are, that's how I started. Do you remember now? Verse 9, I said, we are, Paul said, we are united with him through death. So how do I get in that Jesus? I've got to die, and my life has got to be hid with Christ in God. For me to live is no longer me, improved. The new and improved me. It's not Aussie 2.0. Amen? For me to live 
is Christ. And to die is gain. We are united with him through death. We are committed. We are adopted. We are submerged into Christ through our baptism. Romans 6 tells us about that. Romans 7 speaks of the dilemma of the person who tries to live without that. What I will to do, I do not do. What I will not to do, that I perform. Paul is speaking rhetorically of what it is like, what every one of us has experienced and still experiences to the extent that we refuse to come into that full unity with Christ through dying to our flesh. We are united with Him through? Thank you. Please make that a note. That's one bullet point. We've established one. I won't tell you how many more we have. But I'm not even looking at my notes. I'm just sharing. So Romans 6 talks about dying and being united with baptism into His saving sacrifice. Romans 7 points out what happens if we don't have that. Amen. We're weighed down by this body of sin. Who can deliver me from this body of sin, he says. What is his answer? I thank God through Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8 talks about the life that results when, thank God through Jesus Christ, we do put away this body of death. Romans 8 says, there's now therefore no condemnation. That follows Romans 7, because Romans 7 introduces a lot of condemnation and frustration and angst. But then he says, there's now therefore no condemnation. And he says, it's an imperative, because he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And then he says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. Are you with me? He talks about the spirit of adoption. He goes on, he talks about how the Holy Spirit intercedes through us. So he has described this beautiful salvation that God has given us the Holy Spirit, that we can be made overcomers. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Are you with me? The Spirit has, comes into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Romans 8 is the most beautiful picture of salvation you can find. And as if, it's as if Paul is writing to these Romans and he's getting excited about how incredible the salvation is that Christ has wrought for us. And Romans 9 makes a little shift. He starts remembering his brothers. All the people who are excluded from this greatest of salvations. Have we framed a little bit of a context for Romans 9 thus far? So he remembers his brothers. And he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see how this would be Paul's attitude after he's writing to some Gentiles in Rome of all places? And he, it's like, God, why don't they get it? God, why don't they receive it? He is so troubled. And he says, if it were up to me, I could wish myself damned to hell if it would save my brothers and sisters, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Amen. He says, I am telling you the truth. I do not lie. I could wish myself accursed. And then he tells us, what his brother, his kinsmen, his brothers had going for him. To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is blessed over all? God bless it forever. Amen.
So Israel has five things going for them. The five most important attributes that a people could ask for. They had it. And yet Paul is weeping over the fact that all of this did not result in their salvation. Are you with me? They had the adoption of sons. He called Israel is my son. They had the glory of the covenants. No people on earth ever received from God the covenants of promise as did the Jews. And with these covenants came glory. The glory Abraham encountered when God passed through the calves and formed the covenant with him. The glory that Solomon encountered in the temple or that Moses encountered at the tabernacle. The sanctuary and the holy place. Five things. The giving of the law and the temple service. The promises of the fathers. Finally, Paul says that it's from the Jews that the Messiah came. Of the lineage of David. He was a Jew. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Confined himself to Israel. That tiny little speck of land in all the world. Confined himself to them. Because of the promises. The advantages that they had. So the Jewish family had everything going for them. There's a reason the Messiah wasn't born in Samaria, wasn't born in Damascus, wasn't born in Egypt, wasn't born in Rome, wasn't born in Alexandria, wasn't born in New York City, wasn't born in Los Angeles. He was born in Bethlehem because God made a promise to an old man when he was 100 years old and he said, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. If you'll be faithful to walk before me, to keep my covenant. They had everything going for them. But then Paul continues. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul has created a dilemma. I'm talking now about predestination. Are you with me still? This is the most important thing, so pay attention. Paul has created a dilemma. He, he portrays a beautiful salvation. He bewails that his people don't have it. He points out that they had everything going for them. And he says, does this mean that God's promises, God's word to them has failed? So that's the question. Did God's promise fail to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to David, to Solomon? Did God's promise fail? But he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What was Abraham before God spoke to him that night when he looked into the stars? What was he? Was he a Jew? Hmm? He was a Gentile. Your father was a Semite, a wandering Aramean, is that what it says? He wasn't a Jew until he looked up and he heard the voice of God and he believed it. He had faith. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What does he mean by this? Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So he establishes precedent. Paul says, they're not all Israel who are of the lineage of Israel. He's saying just in the same way that Abraham had two sons. Being Abraham, being Abraham's son didn't automatically make you Israel, did it? Being Isaac's son didn't automatically make you Israel, did it? For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, one father, Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born... And had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but according to him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the, the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That sounds like predestination, doesn't it? So he's saying that from one family can come a natural descendant and a spiritual 
The natural descendant is called Israel, but he's not Israel. The spiritual descendant is really Israel. Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And we know from Galatians that those who are of Mount Sinai, who refuse to come into the spiritual truth of God and of the grace of Christ, they are Hagar in bondage with her children until now. So Paul is making a, a, a parallel. He's saying, we've got God as the Father, and here are all the promises. The promises made to Israel. But a very small contingent of Jews, by comparison, became the New Testament church. And a very large contingent of Jews said, no, we want to stay with the natural, with the external. We don't want to be a, a son of promise, which Galatians 3 and Galatians 4 both tell us is of the Holy Spirit, but we want to be a natural son. Do you understand? What did they say? We have Abraham as our father. So Paul is saying, herein we see again the natural and the spiritual, just as with Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And he's saying they're not all Israel, except if they come face to face with the call of God to keep moving forward, and they say yes. If they say, no, we have Abraham as our father, then they are no longer really Israel. That's the parallel that he's making here. And then he talks about this choice. God made a choice in the days when Rebekah was expecting. Now, I want to ask you something. When God set out to establish the covenant of Israel, the family of Israel, was his purpose only to bless one family? What did he say to Abraham? In you, a handful of families of the earth shall be blessed. Is that what he said? What did he say? All the families of the earth. So God was not being prejudicial, but he was dealing with people who did not have the Holy Spirit. Regeneration was not an available reality. Regeneration was not an available reality. So he had to deal with people according to natural giftings and according to his choice and insight into their attributes, into what they could do and be for him. So when he looks into a womb and he sees two people, he knows that one of them is going to be a tougher kid than the other. That's not that uncommon even today, is it? But thankfully, today we have the Holy Spirit. So that the toughest kids, the kids like Peter, can still be saved. Simon the Zealot can still be saved. Paul, a murderer of Christians, can still be saved. The Holy Spirit changes everything. But prior to this, he looks into the womb and he chooses one. And he doesn't choose the other. And what does he say? One shall make it to heaven and the other shall be damned to hell. Is that what he said? No, he says the older shall serve the younger. He just recognizes that God, in God's plan, he's been picking and he's going to pick this one. And if the other one's going to have a place, it's going to be in serving the younger. Now, did Esau ever serve Jacob? Not that we know of. There's no evidence in Scripture that Esau ever served Jacob. But I would submit to you that Esau serves Jacob tonight and today. We Gentiles are Esau. We typify, Edom typifies the Gentiles. And every time the natural man comes under sub submission and subjection to the spiritual man, Esau serves Jacob. The one who perseveres with God. He gets priority in this battle. So it says that Esau... He chose them, says, the, the younger, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that passage where he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, did he say that to Rebekah? Huh? No, he said it in Malachi 1 and 2. Hundreds and hundreds of years after these people, when Esau had absolutely refused to serve the younger, and had gone his own way against the command of God and created this mess of a nation, then the Elohim of, of the Lord can say, Esau, I, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Do you really think that the Lord 
pulled back the blanket, looked in the bassinet at poor little Esau and said, I just hate you. I mean, not a chance. There's not a chance. Now, we also have to understand even the term hatred. In the Bible, to the Hebrews, they, they would have looked at this a little differently than we do. Does Jesus not rebuke the Pharisees and say, you forsake the commandment of God for your traditions when you tell people that they should give what they would have given to their parents to the temple and you dishonor God by doing this? Matthew 19, do you remember that? Well, then why did Jesus say in Luke 14, unless you hate father, mother, you cannot be my disciple? The terminology here speaks to priority. It does not speak to abhorring something, but preferring something. It's a, it's a question of preference. If I love my parents more than God, then that's sin, isn't it? But if I don't love my parents along with God, then that is also sin, isn't it? There were many promises that even came to Edom. You'll have to look them up, but they're there. Uh, there are many promises that came to Edom even. And he even gives Rebekah an indication that his blessings are going to be on Esau. But when it says that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, if we're going to apply that to the individuals, then let's use the interpretation of hated that Jesus used. <laughs> because otherwise, we're running afoul with the nature of God. Are you with me so far? What do I mean when I say that? We're running afoul with the nature of God. God is love. God is love. That is a huge statement that in many ways flew in the face of what even the Jews saw about God in their day. We're told that God is long-suffering toward man. Amen? Somebody go to 2 Peter 3, 9. Read it for me. Somebody else go to Titus 2.11. All right, somebody read 1 Timothy 2.4. What was important about this? Here's this one that Brother Gabe read. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, indicating that if he'll be patient, we'll change. Long-suffering toward us, and why is he long-suffering? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. To repentance. Is it God's will to send some to hell? It is God's will that all should come to repentance. But this brother says to me the other night, he says, but that, that diminishes the sovereignty of God. No, it defines the sovereignty of God. If God's sovereignty, if his all-powerfulness is according to brute force or coercion, then it doesn't make any sense. But if he believes differently than us, if in his wisdom he actually knows that love is the most powerful force in the universe, then we are going to prove in the end that love is exactly what he said it is, all-powerful. Do you understand? God is love. So his all-powerfulness cannot involve coercion. Are you with me? He is a sovereign God. Yes, he is ultimately, but he subjected the creation to futility and hope. He gave things into our hands because he wants love to be proven more powerful than manipulation and coercion. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. Amen? Somebody uh, find for me John 5 and 40. Somebody else, John 6 and 40. Jesus is speaking to the people. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. What is precluding them having life? What is preventing it? 
their free will. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. John 6 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. What about Matthew 23, 37? God wanted, but they were unwilling. So is the sovereignty of God diminished? This is a view of sovereignty that is not familiar to most people. So why can you shake your head and say no? If God wants something, can he not get it? That's it. Okay, so he says, God put it in order, this balance, this principle of fairness or law of compensation or justice that you might say, this principle of free will. So in our view, we may impose our view on God and say, well, this is what power is. But is his thoughts our thoughts? He has a different view of what power is. He believes in love being the most powerful force in the universe. Because if you say, God's not going to violate my will, are you saying that my will is more powerful than God's sovereignty? What about when my will and God's will collide? What happens then? She's making a very valid point. She's referring to Philippians where Paul says, ultimately... Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? So in an ultimate sense, Hitler's going to be down on his knees saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Stalin is going to be there with him. Amen? The worst of the worst, the most arrogant of the most arrogant, they're all going to come to a point of complete surrender, but it will not equal salvation. Amen? But there is a point to be made that the honor and sovereignty of God, again, is in an ultimate sense. That He is willing to, to suffer in the interim in order to bring glory in the end. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the predestinationists are like, yeah, that's what I was waiting for. So first of all, that's true. But then the question becomes, who does God have mercy? To whom does God show mercy? So he says, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, we have to remain in the context in which he is speaking. He is alluding to three figures so far. Let's stay focused on who he's alluding to. One is Ishmael. Another is Esau. Another is Pharaoh. He's about to get to Pharaoh. So, did all of these men will to get even God's blessing? Maybe not Pharaoh, but those other two did. Did Esau not seek to inherit the blessing? Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. He sought to inherit the blessing, didn't he? But did he do it through grace? Or did he do it through will worship? There is a difference between a will that is broken to God and a will that is strong and determined in and of itself. 
The man who believes he can do it because he makes up his mind is a fool. He cannot do it because he makes up his mind. He can only do it if God's grace is revealed to him. So you say to me, okay, well then God's grace was revealed to him, but it hasn't been revealed to me, therefore he predestined me to hell. I better enjoy earth while I can. And I say, no, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching them everything they need to know. So a, res a will that is broken to do God's will. He works in us to will and do his good pleasure. This is a will that, is not, that we cannot take pride in, that is not of our own choosing, that is not a work that we can boast in. But it is a will nonetheless. Is it not our will to humble ourselves? We're using will in an interchangeable manner here. The woman who breaks the alabaster jar and shatters it at the feet of Jesus, would you call that an exertion of will? In one sense it is, but not as we would typically de define it, would we? Are you still? Okay, when he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he gives grace to the humble, therefore humble yourself. Is it not a choice on our part to humble ourselves? But it's grace that even tells us to do so. If we try to achieve grace through the choices that we elect for ourselves, will that result in grace? No. It has to be with God at the center. With God giving the question, giving the demand, and us saying yes to your will and to your way. Somebody get Romans 11.32. Somebody else, Ephesians 2 and 1. So we're talking about one kind of will that's worthless. The will of Esau. But did not Jacob also require will? If Jacob had said no... Listen carefully. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. But God has committed them all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on a few. Is that what it says? It says on all. <laughs> That's what he wills. In his sovereign will, Back when the Holy Spirit wasn't in play, he had to be selective in who he chose. But now that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, he says, come unto me, whosoever will. The whole dynamic has changed because of the Holy Spirit. And the election of Jacob over Esau was never one of hell over heaven. It was one of service, of preference, of priority. He did not destine Esau. He did not create Esau to be another log in the ovens of hell. That is absurd and flies in the face of Scripture. But there are some who would say so. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were children of wrath. We were Esau's. We were Ishmaelites. We were not of Israel. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. We are everything that exemplifies the opposite of the kind of election that, was, that could only take place in the days of Jacob and Esau. We were in the era and the dispensation of grace. 
And that is the one that we live in today. So that all have a chance. We were shut up. We were destined for wrath. Amen? But God, who is rich in mercy, out of his great love, he loved us while we were yet sinners. Amen. Let's carry on with Romans 9. So he says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. And who does he show mercy to? That he might show mercy to all. Romans 11.32 For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this, reason, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has, has desires and he hardens whom he has desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Okay, so we say of Pharaoh, how did God harden his heart? By giving him a choice to do something different. The same way our hearts are still hardened through the deceitfulness of unrighteousness. Amen. We are confronted with a chance, with the reality of God's presence, his love, and we choose to do something else. Our hearts are hardened. So he says, You will say, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? So was God showing the same kind of mercy to the Egyptians as he was showing to the Israelites? No. The same kind of favor and preference was not being shown to that family because the Holy Spirit was not in play. Was God showing the same kind of favor to Esau that he was showing to Jacob? No, because he had to deal with the natural raw material of a vitiated self, a vitiated human nature. And he had to work with what he had to work with. Think about creatures that cannot receive the Holy Spirit. If I'm picking a dog from a litter and I want a, I want a sheep dog that's going to be just what I need it to be, I'm not going to put on some cloak of magnanimity and pick the worst dog just because I want to show how good I am. I can't give that dog the Holy Spirit. But us, we're the worst of the bunch. And the Lord gives us His Spirit. His Spirit Himself works, helps in our weakness. That's what changes everything. But even there, it was not a question of predetermination but a question of foreknowledge, of seeing what would be, not determining and forcing what would be. He confronted him, he hardened him by giving him a chance to do the opposite of his inclinations. So he has, etc. On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And yet, Paul tells us that we're all supposed to be vessels of honor. Amen? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience toward vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that's exactly what He did do. And He did not make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory. Amen? Even us, whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. So he says, again, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the election that made the Jews Jews. That's how this whole discussion starts. He is not talking about the election of one Gentile to heaven and another Gentile to hell. He is talking about the election of the Jews. And why did their election not result in salvation? That's his big question. Because they were elected. I will call those who are not a people my people, and she who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in, the, in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. So God's word is not going to fail. God's truth is not going to fail. But he's going to count on a remnant. He's banking on a remnant. He's subjecting the creation to futility and hope. And there is a predestined here. There is a predestined on one side and a predestined on the other. There is a predestined people. Two nations are in your womb, she's told. Amen? In Genesis 25. So it is predestined that the kingdom of God is the only thing that is going to ultimately result in salvation. That there is salvation in no one else and nowhere else. It is predestined that all the works of man and the earth with it is going to be burned with fire. Those are predestined. But the free will is that you can choose which camp you want to be a part of. God has given the individual opportunity to everyone. But he has predestined us. He has, he has predestined the kingdom for salvation. Amen? And that's, that's what is found there in, in uh, Matthew 25, uh, 34, where Jesus talks about us being from the foundation of the earth. He says, foundation of the world, he specifically says it's the kingdom. So our names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the, of the world. But in what sense? In a corporate sense or in an individual sense? If we say in an individual sense, then we have to contradict all these scriptures that speak of an all-inclusive salvation for whosoever will. But if we speak of a corporate sense, then we agree. There is predestination. Amen? Or if we speak in a natural sense, we also agree that there is election based on gifting and natural talent, not based on the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. So he starts the whole thing off by saying, the Jews aren't being saved even though they were elected. They are losing what they had, the chance and the choice they had. And he concludes by saying, what shall we say? The Gentiles are receiving it, not because it was in the cards, but because of the righteousness that is according to faith. Verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Why? Because God did not choose them? No, God did choose them. And it didn't result in their salvation. Gentiles passed them up and arrived at it. But why didn't they get it? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. It was their problem. The onus was on them. And if they would pursue it by faith, they would attain to it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Not because God's choice or anything else. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now you see the sandwich? It begins in the first verse of, of chapter 9, and now in verse one of chapter 10, this was all just a parenthetical. And he's still praying for these people that we imagine are not elect. <laughs> Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. It, it's, the onus was on them. The difference between grace and not was on them. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? 
This is what the Jews were saying. Where's the Messiah going to come from? They were looking still. Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. And who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. He's telling them that salvation and righteousness is by faith. And now he's emphasizing that that faith is very available. It's in their mouth and in their own heart, the word of faith that they are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's for everybody. It's whosoever will. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He shut up all under disobedience that he might show mercy to all. All of them. Amen? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction. <laughs> Here's his concluding thought. Ready? On this one topic. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's worship God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.